0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 83. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious code, and compromised systems. We are back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel. And as always, a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. You find folks are there week in and week out bringing this stuff to our attention, and I truly believe sharing knowledge makes us all a little bit safer. I'm joined once again by the one and only Matt Bromley, who is here to help us make sense of what's coming through the wire. How are you doing today, Matt?
1: Hey, Chris. Absolutely no complaints. Doing fantastic on this wonderful Wednesday, December 6th. Enjoying it, man. It's, uh, you know, been... An interesting year, 2023. And Chris, I can't help but think as we get into these maybe last few episodes of the year of kind of reminiscing back on some of the things that we've talked about. And I know, uh, you know, in some of the things that we've mentioned, some of the Intel reports we talk about, blog posts, whatever it might be. Now we're getting to that point where we're like, hey, back in October, we remember we talked about this? Then we refresh it or the threat actor comes back, back in July, back in June. So it's uh, it's interesting to see how the year is coming about. So I'm a little bit nostalgic right now, but it uh, doesn't mean I'm not looking ahead to see what these threats are up to either.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, and one of the episodes I'm planning to uh, publish over the holidays is everybody's prediction for the future of cybersecurity. So I think that's a nice way to wrap up the year as well.
1: I can't wait to see that. That's going to be fantastic.
0: Alright, so uh, the first one we have is from Malwarebytes, who is reporting on Atomic Stealer, which is also known as Amos. It's a popular information stealer for macOS. Regular listeners of the show will remember that back in September, we reported on a malvertising campaign that was tricking victims into downloading this piece of malware that was being disguised as a popular application. In this new development, Amos is now being delivered to Mac users via a fake browser update, tracked as ClearFake. Fake browser updates have been a common theme for Windows users for years, and yet, up until now, the threat actors didn't expand into macOS in a consistent way. With a growing list of compromised sites at their disposal, these threat actors are able to reach a wider and wider audience. The article goes into a pretty good amount of detail on the attack chain and offers up some IOCs. I think we've seen a growing interest in macOS as a target over the last year, and this seems to be just more of that. Anything to say about this one, Matt?
1: Yeah, Chris, it's funny. This is the first one that I was kind of thinking back about, which is we keep talking about Mac again and again, and not in a bad way, but in a way that it continues to be an interesting vector for adversaries to look at and for adversaries you know, to, to consider, especially given the population of Mac users out there. Uh, this one I find to be a little bit interesting, uh, only because if anyone's kind of followed what Chris and I have talked about, you know, you'll probably recognize the term fake updates which is a uh, you know a campaign that's run for a long time in a way to try and get folks to click on malicious links. I think this one follows in the same chain, fake updates, clear fake. There's definitely a little bit of a, a literal tie there, but uh, nonetheless, it's an interesting takeaway for for folks who are Mac users and for those of you who support environments that have Mac users. I'm going to encourage you to go a step further and and just advise and make your folks aware, make your teams aware of what's happening. You know, Chris, one thing that, that I was thinking about as I was kind of reviewing this article, especially from a software update perspective, is Mac users, myself being one, my personal system is a Mac, I've received a ton more updates in the past maybe six to eight months than I would normally get from Apple. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's a good thing to come out there. But they've got brand new forms of updates. They call them like critical security updates or incident updates or something along those lines. I don't remember the exact terminology. but I know incident is in there, and the very first time I saw it, it was like, "Oh my goodness, like am I being fished? Is this bad or what's going on here? You know? It turns out it was legitimate, but it's not rare now for Apple users to start to get what may feel like an abundance of update notifications? And I'm, I'm talking like, like maybe once a month or twice a month here, as opposed to, you know, once every six months, which it might have been for. Definitely not at the scale of Microsoft Windows, which is, you know, uh, the Hallmark Patch Tuesday thing, but more along the lines of it's not unusual to receive these types of updates. So if you're a Chrome user, Safari user, you've got users who are likely those things then I would highly recommend advising and educating and saying, hey, you know, either we will, meaning the IT or security or IT security team, we'll alert you of when updates come down. We'll push them through official channels, if you will. Think like an MDM or something like that. Um, or just, you know, if you're unsure, just reach out and let us know. Just reach out and ask some questions. And then, of course, you know, obviously wrap some of the, uh, the IOCs from Malwarebytes' blog posts here into your detection mechanisms. And, and I think you'll have a you know a good chance against this but adversaries wouldn't do it if it wasn't successful so I'm gonna issue that blanket guidance as always right advise users and educate them so they know what's coming down the line
0: yeah and that's a great point. I have noticed all the updates from Mac it seems like every time I log into my Mac OS machine there's uh, something to something to do
1: and I love how they're always critical security updates too. And then, you know, Chris, you and I get on and we talk about what they are. And it's always something like some carefully crafted exploit used by some APT somewhere. So definitely gives me a a little more momentum to update that as quick as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah. And speaking of ones that we talked about earlier in the year, identity service provider Okta has disclosed that it detected additional threat actor activity in connection with the October 2023 breach of its support case management system. For those that don't remember, back on October 20th, Okta announced that it suffered an intrusion in its customer support system. At the time, the company stated that only quote-unquote certain Okta customers were affected and that it notified around 1% of its 18,400 customers that were impacted. Well, it turns out that wasn't the whole truth. It turns out that the threat actor downloaded the names and email addresses of all Okta customers' support system users. And I quote, All Okta Workforce Identity Cloud and Customer Identity Solution customers are impacted except customers in our FedRAMP High and DOD IL-4 environments. These environments use a separate support system not accessed by the threat actor. The Okta Zero CIC support case management system was not impacted by this incident. On top of that, the adversary is believed to have accessed reports containing contact information for all Okta certified users, some Okta Customer Identity Cloud customers, and unspecifies Okta employee information. However, it emphasized that the data does not include user credentials or sensitive personal data. I know we don't like to pile onto victims, but I really have to question Okta's original disclosure. What say you, Matt Bromley? Yeah,
1: you know, this is an interesting one, Chris. I think we might have talked about this last week or the week before where, you know, these disclosures that come out and the requirements for these disclosures and things like that, that they're often in the middle of an active ongoing investigation. So they're very carefully crafted and worded to be a point in time, you know, at this moment, as of the current investigation, based on the evidence examined thus far, there's always this like clause in there which is like we might still find more stuff we might uncover more things you know you're, you're bound to see these types of updates happen and, and you're bound you know to see these types of things come up and I think we have to be a little careful about how quick we take the first disclosure as the you know the, the definitive this is everything that has happened and usually the words that you'll see a lot of times are going to be something like uh, you know we do not believe that or we do not show evidence of, blah, 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 right? But the moment that that statement changes, the moment that, uh uh-oh, we found evidence of this thing, then you've got to come out and clarify like they did in this case right here, you know? Now, of course, you know, you went through and you quoted, so I'll pick out a couple lines here. In particular, they called out. uh, However, we emphasize that data does not include user credentials or sensitive personal data, right? However, the line right before that, The adversary is believed to have accessed reports. Well, and you know, interestingly enough, we've got two not conflicting, but definitely potentially vague statements in there. We believe, however, it does not. And it's kind of like, well, do you believe or is it there? So we've got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. I would advise folks to understand that anytime a data breach like this occurs, first off, understand that there's an active investigation going on, number one. Number two, be aware that there are, and and I say this positively because it's necessary, there are lawyers who, who will look over and craft these statements before they're released. They're not fake or they're not, you know, they're not lies, but they're often not as technical as a lot of security folks want them to be, where you get this like you know the adversary came in through this, here's these c twos, here's this, here's that, blah, blah, blah. You know the legal profession is trained to help protect their clients and protect those environments. and they're going to do that inside of these releases as well. So they're not going to release something that they don't know about yet. And I know what some folks think about, Chris, because you and I have both seen kind of the social media grab your pitchforks bandwagon start up where folks are like, oh, you know, they stole everything. Never use this company again. Burn it down. Burn it down. Blah, blah. And it's like, I don't think you realize that they're probably, you know, going through this investigation right now. But the more that can be disclosed, the better. So I'm a fan of when someone comes back and not necessarily retracts a statement, but says, hey, we need to modify some things because we found some additional evidence. I like when that happens. Now, Chris, I'll I'll give you maybe a little personal story to tell you just kind of how this can go. And for anyone who is listening, just so you understand how this works out. I was working uh, a a credit card breach. This was many, many years ago when, when PCI breaches were all the rage amongst threat actors, right? Ransomware was just a fly on the wall that you swatted away. But I can tell you that there was two independent teams who were working this investigation. Um, I was leading one of them. The other one was headed up by another company. We both started our investigations at different points of the attack life cycle. One of us was working for a law firm. One of us was working for the impacted environment. One of us, so, so by nature, right? One of us was closer to the source of truth, to the evidence one of us had a third party intermediary there was a bunch of different steps in the way guess what the lawyers were crafting these press releases based off of what they knew at that point in time but you had two teams analyzing different evidence saying different things offering competing opinions oh no it's 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 1000 card numbers no no it's 2000 well over here we see 3000 well maybe we need to duplicate or deduplicate these like there's a so many different things that come into it meanwhile there's a regulatory body out there which is like you've got four hours to tell us everything you know so a lot of organizations when they come to these press releases are going to come to the table with everything that they can say and they can stand behind at that point in time saying this may change as the investigation continues now let me finish this little anecdote here there was a key piece there was a key finding In this particular case, which unfortunately amplified the number of exposed cards, both teams the one I was leading and the one, you know, the the other one that was working this, both teams reached that critical point of analysis, reached that critical point of evidence about five to six weeks into the investigation not because we intentionally waited to the end, not because we intentionally didn't want to look at the bad stuff until you know, we were ready for it or anything like that. It's just where the analysis led us, where the adversary had buried artifacts, where they had hidden things, how they had gotten into the environment. Investigations take time. Sometimes you pick your starting point, sometimes you don't. Sometimes an incident response investigation is a lot of fumbling around in the dark looking for a light switch, And you may find that light switch in the first hour and bust it all open, or it may take you a month to find that light switch. Unfortunately, regulatory bodies still need their reporting requirements met during that time. So the gist of all that, or maybe the summary of all that for everyone who's listening is these things take time. Sometimes the best disclosures that you'll ever see from an investigation or from a breach are going to be six to eight weeks afterwards, because that's when they can confidently stand behind the findings. But until then, just exercise caution. Change passwords if you're that concerned, right? Implement a different mechanism in place or something like that. Let the organization, let the victim go through that investigation so they can give you the best possible disclosure and then make that long-term decision. And the flip side of this is put yourself in their shoes. If it was your organization that was impacted or was going through an investigation, you'd want the same type of latitude as well. So that's my kind of thoughts on this one. I know this was a little bit of a longer digression there, Chris, but I've been in the exact shoes that those investigators are in right now. And I'll tell you, it's not an easy path to walk sometimes. Best thing we all can do is let them do their work and not speculate, step back instead and say, hey, I'll exercise caution where I need to until we can all stand confidently behind the results of what happened.
0: Yeah, no, I really appreciate your perspective, Matt. That's a that's a great way to think about it. And I think also- A good point for people who may be using the vendor software who gets breached information comes out you know assume there's more take some precaution and 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 wait to get the final word before you make any decisions
1: solid points or solid takeaway and some of the best advice
0: all right the next one is from huntress who are reporting that threat actors of varying types continue to target manage file transfer or mft applications for exploitation The latest concerning MFT vulnerability was originally identified by Converge Technology Solutions in August 2023, impacting Crush FTP. Following responsible disclosure to the vendor, the vulnerability was publicly disclosed on November 16, 2023 as CVE-2023-43117. The article is the Huntress team's analysis of the threat posed by the given CVE and Crush FTP as well as a broader exploration of the ongoing challenges in managing the security of MFT applications. The vulnerability in Crush FTP is merely the latest in a series of attack vectors targeting MFT services and applications in 2023. Some examples of the MFT services that have been in the cybersecurity news over the last year include GoAnywhere MFT, WSFTP server, and of course, MoveIt IT, which was the source of the biggest data leak for 2023 so far which started back in June. The type of applications are are valuable targets for adversaries because they are usually externally facing and will contain data that can be used for extortion. What do you think, Matt? Are we going to continue to see more and more headlines that include MFT applications? And is there anything orgs that rely on these types of software services can do to make them more secure?
1: Well, Chris, uh, first off, I just have to nip this in the bud. I called this one out on various social media channels. But uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely from an era where MFT did not mean managed file transfer applications. And those of you who have been in, in the uh, forensic incident response world for a while, some of you responded. I got some great personalized messages too, but uh, some of you know exactly what I mean here. So Chris, this one threw me for a bit of a loop for a moment, just because I was like, MFT vulnerabilities. Oh my goodness. And I read through and I was like, wait, this is, this is a managed file transfer application. So I'm at that point now in my career where I've watched security acronyms, or I guess I should say computer acronyms kind of overlap each other. And, um, you know, it, it's an interesting takeaway and, and whatnot, but that's, that, that's like the old man and me digressing about, you know, so, so what, what was what, the original,
0: what these... uh, what's the original definition of MFT for us youngins that may not have the, the experience. <laughs>
1: So the original MFT is the master file table. Uh, the right. master file table is right. a, yeah, it's, it's part of the, it's, it's part of NTFS. Uh, the, the windows operating system is, is primarily run on top of NTFS. Um, but the master file table is kind of like the catalog. We used to refer to it as like the library of all the files on a disc and MFT analysis is itself like a very advanced discipline because there's just so many things. I mean, you know, when, when I've taught advanced forensic classes, Chris, we would spend a day on the MFT. Um, it's it's that robust of an artifact. So this one definitely made me like turn my head twice. And I was like, wait a second. Oh, hang on. I've got to learn a new acronym to uh, remain relevant in security here. So nonetheless, but let's, let's get to the, the question at hand and the most important part of this, which is like, hey, I use this thing. Chris, I, I think the best example you gave here was MoveIt being, you know, uh, one of the biggest data leaks in 2023 back in June. I think that was a prime example for where folks just need to be careful. And I'm not saying don't integrate with these types of SaaS services or applications or third party offerings. Uh, definitely integrate with them because they help outsource and deal with functionality that you don't want to roll your own. You know, I, I would argue and say if someone were to build their own MFT or managed file transfer capability, it would be whatever form of measurement you want, significantly more vulnerable and weaker than a company whose job it is to build and provide those services. Uh, You know, it's kind of like that never roll your own crypto thing. And and I would argue this is in the very same boat. So I don't think the answer here is, you know, just do it yourself and and whatnot. Um, But I would argue and say, if you're utilizing these types of third-party services, first and foremost, be aware of it, okay? Be aware of where and how it integrates into your environment. Uh, You know, perform those audits, double-check those application links, see how folks are logging into those organizations and understand what the links look like between your organization and theirs. And I think this is where things like single sign-on and shared logins and, you know, API keys and all sorts of different connectors, Chris, can be really, really valuable. Because it can give you an insight to say, well, here's, you know, the four or five ways that we connect into that application. Were any of those things, you know, rendered vulnerable or anything like that? And and what type of steps should we take, right? And that's linking two orgs together. From an access perspective, if you're giving your employees or your customers or or your vendors or whomever access to an instance that you're hosting or sharing files outside of these and whatnot. You know, utilize all the strong authentication mechanisms that they can inside of those applications. Uh, Just wrap as much security around normal business processes as you can. By no means did anyone anywhere ever say, oh, it's someone else's stack, so you can use a weak password, right? That's never been the case. So utilize those additional authentication mechanisms and and stuff if you can. Um, However, you know, what that does is that secures The way that my company and I, or the way that my company works with a third-party group is number one. Number two, it secures access in case someone gets access into our organization and whatnot. And what that is really doing is it's setting the stage for when a vulnerability like this gets disclosed. You're able to quickly just either sever that connection, wrap additional controls around it, wrap additional detection and monitoring around it, or change those keys. Change those things if need be. Now, let's look at this particular vulnerability. In, you know, let's look at this vulnerability here. The, we go through, and I'm looking at Huntress's blog here, and, and again, great blog post on this one, but they talked about how these externally facing services are often used as kind of like initial access vectors and where adversaries are getting in, and they're then you know, deploying ransomware or something along those lines. Um, I believe in this case right here, this is one that uh, could be explained. This is a crush FTP one. This when exploited could ultimately lead to someone going in, dropping, you know, malicious files and so on and so forth. I would go a step further then and say, okay, well that if that's the case, they're going through that vehicle that connects into my organization. My advice was to define that connection, understand that connection all right, if I know the way that you're coming in, if I know the road, the entry vector, you're going to get into my organization, I'm going to wrap some additional monitoring around that if I can't turn it off, right? If we can't sever that crush FTP usage within a moment's notice, we've got to keep it up for business processes or whatever it might be. I'm going to wrap up my detections. I'm going to wrap up the visibility I have around that particular thing. And I think that's going to be the best advice ever Wash, rinse, and repeat that advice for every third-party integration that you've got, especially if you're relying on it for business processes or you're pushing sensitive data into it or any one of those other qualifiers that would throw something into that, you know, oh, crap moment if a vulnerability disclosure like this comes out.
0: Very good advice. The last one I got for us today came across the radar when it was still just a tweet from Microsoft Intel at approximately 4 p.m. on November 30th. The tweet reads as follows Microsoft has detected DanaBot infections leading to hands on keyboard activity by ransomware operator Twisted Spider, culminating in the deployment of Cactus Ransomware. In this campaign, DanaBot is distributed via malvertising. Uh, for those that don't know, DanaBot is a multifunctional tool along the lines of Emotet, TrickBot, QuackBot, and IcedID that's capable of acting as a stealer and a point of entry for next stage payloads. It has apparently become the new tool of choice for the APT Twisted Spider since the dismantling of QuackBot infrastructure. On top of this, the Cactus ransomware is less than a year old with some sophisticated anti-detection techniques built in. There have been at least 70 victims so far and I'm sure we will see many more. I think this is a great example of threat actors continuing to evolve in response to law enforcement and the changing technological landscape. Twisted Spider has been around for a while. Do you know anything about this APT and does this kind of tooling change surprise you at all?
1: This doesn't. No, absolutely not. I think uh, this aligns with a lot of maybe the higher level concepts, Chris, that you and I have talked about on on many episodes now, which have focused around kind of threat actors, you know, doing their thing or or, or changing things around or or looking for techniques that work when their old stuff doesn't. Um, I think maybe another takeaway here for folks is the look at you know the, the the mechanisms that are working for different types of groups and how easy it is for that to be emulated we, we've talked before about how you know it's kind of a small world out there it's not a uh, it, it's not necessarily like a super large market there's no Costco versus Sam's Club of exploits and things like that where you can just you know everyone can have their own thing and there's no crossovers uh, if I'm watching, if I'm a threat actor and I'm watching a, another group find a lot of success with you know something like a, uh, a trick bot or a quack bot or an ice ID or something like that, and I've got my own, but I want to emulate some of the things that they've done, then I'm going to go that route because it's working for them, right? The other thing that I think we've got to call out here, and you specified this in particular, quack bot, cack bot, however you're supposed to refer to it, you know that infrastructure we talked about when this was taken down. We talked about the law enforcement resources that went behind it. And not to quote like the numerous Hollywood movies that are out there, but if you cut off the head of the snake, three more appear, right? Remember, folks, and I know Chris and I, I know you, we've talked about this before. Remember that when you bring down something like a botnet or you bring down ransomware or a piece of malware or something like that, you're bringing down a revenue stream. You're bringing down money. We've talked and here's a nice culmination thought. We've talked about things like botnets as a service, ransomware as a service, malware as a service, insert bad thing here as a service. We've talked about all of these. Folks, that's a revenue stream for someone. It may be one person running a side hustle. It may be a team of 50 who utilizes that revenue stream to provide for their families. I'm not saying it's legitimate, but what I'm saying is when infrastructure gets taken down, there's an opportunity for folks to jump back in because revenue streams don't just disappear like that. So if we bring all this down to that human perspective, we see, well, the dismantling and the disappearance of one infrastructure has led to the growth of another. I hate to say it, but that's just natural evolution in business. You take away a competitor, someone else is going to rise up and take their space. And sure enough, here we go, Chris, as you called out, right? Less than a year old Sophisticated anti detection techniques built in, and at least 70 victims so far in less than a year. Those are great track numbers. Those are fan- that's a fantastic record if anyone's keeping track. Again, you know, I don't like to compliment threat actors, but that's a pretty meteoric rise. Imagine one day you're at one, and it's like that first sale, that first dollar comes in, you find some techniques that work, and then. Brrr, Here you go. Next thing you know, you're at dozens of victims and a couple of tweaks and tooling changes and whatnot, you know, came through there. And as you called out, threat actors evolving in response to law enforcement in the changing landscape, it's expected. It's expected now. I don't think anyone should be surprised. Now, let me offer a quick thought on the intel side of this for anyone who, uh, you know, maybe in the in the world of threat intel or maybe reads intel reports and views them as like set in stone. Very similar to incident reports, which we talked about earlier. These are points in time. This is everything I've observed about a group up to this date, right? Now, let's make it a little more human. Let's personify this. Let's say I'm tracking a threat actor as a physical person, okay? That person has habits. They've got uh, a schedule. They've got a routine. They've, they've got a doctor they see. They've got a computer they use. They've got a cafe they like to drink out of, but they they switch cars, Maybe they've got three cars, and they just pick a random which one they use. Well, if I'm only watching on certain days, I may only see two of those three cars. And then, by sheer random happenstance, the day that I'm watching, car number three enters the, the stream. Did everything else change about that individual, or did they just change one little part of their persona, one little part of their tooling, one little part of their approach? And it was the latter, so threat intel teams are constantly watching, looking for those commonalities, looking for those overlaps, and then again, come out with these disclosures and say, hey, this threat group that we were tracking X number of months or years ago, we've seen a change in tooling. Their objectives may remain the same. Their victims may remain the same. The way they go about doing what they do may remain the same. But here's some of the tooling changes. And Chris, as you called out, it's in response to what the industry's doing. And, and i think you know we'll continue to see this if anyone here is is ever surprised that a threat actor you know changes their tools around and stuff like that i, I need you to read through some threat reports with a little careful a little more careful detail because it, it's typical business for threat actors to do that they've got to respond to the changes in their environment just like a security team is going to go buy a new thing to respond to a change in threats it, it's it's one hand continues to kind of you know wash the other
0: Yeah, the game of Whack-A-Mole will continue indefinitely.
1: We are forever the high score players in that game as well, sir.
0: All right. Uh, Thanks again for the amazing insight, Matt. I really appreciate you coming on here to uh, talk these things through with me. Until next week, I guess.
1: Likewise, Chris. Thank you and a huge thanks once again, as always, to the folks on the Intel chat in our community Slack channel who uh, continue to do some awesome, awesome updates here and We always love seeing that intel, keep that conversation going. For anyone who's not in our channel, not in the Slack, come join us, slack.limacharley.io. We'd love to have you in there.
0: And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at LimaCharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharley.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.